This is a podcast from meow.net. Meow! Connecting people working for cultural democracy in Europe and America, this is a culture of possibility. With Arlene Goldbard and Francois Matarasso. Welcome to episode 32 of A Culture of Possibility, a podcast about community-based arts, cultural politics, cultural democracy, and all related things. My name is Arlene Goldbard, and I'm talking to you from Lamy, New Mexico, which is in the southwest of the United States. And I am going to hand things to my co-host, and then we will introduce our guest, Francois. Hello, I'm Francois Matarasso. I'm speaking to you from Burgundy in eastern France, where we're currently in the middle of an increasingly uh, regular uh, bout of very hot weather, which I'm hoping will finish in a day or two, because uh, that's not my favorite climate. Yeah. Thanks, Francois. And today we are super delighted to have my old friend, Karen Atlas. I did not count up how many years we've known each other, Karen, but I think it started uh, at the Rockefeller Foundation, where you were a Warren Weaver fellow, and then you went to Apple Shop, and we had a couple guests on from Roadside Theater not too long ago. American Festival Project. I have not memorized your resume, but I just want to say it's been my delight to know Karen for many years, and I'm so happy that she's here with us. And Karen, could you just introduce yourself to folks and tell a little bit about what you're working with, where you come from? Sure. Hi, everybody. I'm Karen Atlas, and I am in Brooklyn, New York. And to kind of place you where I'm at, um, I'm lucky enough to live across from Prospect Park, which is a, an incredible urban park. Um, so you can enter the park and pretty much be transformed into uh, the world of Brooklyn, but without all the cars and noise. Um, it's, it's everything I love about Brooklyn. It's incredibly diverse. People use the park for everything. After, during COVID, it was everybody's respite. Um, you see birthday parties there, there's concerts, there's people spontaneously playing music, um, and you can walk into parts of the park and feel like you're in a forest. So that's where I am. I'm not in the park, but looking at it. <laughs> um, so I'm going to talk about a couple things today, but we'll start with um, a network called Naturally Occurring Cultural Districts New York, uh, a long name. <laughs> And we call it NOCDNY for short. And um, this is a group that came together in 20, 2009. And Arlene, actually, you were at one of the initial roundtables where uh, we were having a financial crisis here in all over. <laughs> and um, I work in a lot of different sectors. And what I found was I would go to a, a meeting in the community development world and they were all our sector's in crisis, what are we gonna do? And then I'd go to an arts meeting and they'd say, the arts world is, we're all in crisis, we, we have to keep ourselves alive, what are we gonna do? And these were all very insular conversations and very sort of focused on the professional fields. And it was really driving us crazy to those of us who try to think more holistically and really try to start by thinking about our communities and their survival. So we convened folks from all these different sectors, and there were people working in civic engagement, um, lots of different sectors, environmental justice, and we sat around a table and said, um, how, instead of talking about how our sectors survive, how do we talk about our communities survive, and how do we come together to do that, because we know that's the only way it's going to happen. And so, um, one of the things we talked about was this concept of naturally occurring cultural districts. And it was, how do we come up with a framework that's a positive framework of um, a very integrated approach to working in community? And so, you know, when we talk about NOCDs, it's just like the opposite of what a cultural district is, uh, an institutional cultural district. Instead of saying, 
there's nothing in a neighborhood, we have to bring culture to it. It's saying there's culture throughout the community, there's knowledge, there's wisdom, there's capacity, and how do we support that? Um, and how do we help connect the dots between communities, recognizing the strength of neighborhoods, but to make citywide change, how can we all come together around some shared values and agendas? And um, so that's really what our, uh, that's what we came together to do, to do. And we took a long time to come together. We spent time in each other's neighborhoods. We identified our shared values, which was key for us staying together. And, you know, these are things like um, this asset-based approach, the importance of local leadership and self-determination in communities, the um, recognition that place matters, but place is complicated. And um, different people have different relationships to that place, the importance of historic context, uh, things like that. Um, and then the importance of interdependence, which really was our driving force for coming together. So that's a little bit about, um, and then we do all kinds of um, programming. Uh, we've done over about the last six years, work with public housing communities to strengthen cultural hubs. We do a lot of peer learning exchanges, um, again, sort of coming from the value that of the wisdom that's out there and how do we share that wisdom with each other. Um, we um, are interested in sort of building our joint capacity to sh shift policy um, because there's so many um, big institutions that know how to affect policy and we want to build power at the grassroots to do that. And so those are some of the things that, that um, we're involved in. Well, Karen Francois wants to ask you something and I'm gonna hand over to him in a minute. I just wanna to mention to the listeners that we'll put NOCDNY and Arden Democracy, which you'll be talking to people about later too, um, and any other links you want on the meow.net website so people will be able to click and get a lot more information. And I also just wanted to say um, that what some of, if we've been working in these policy realms, there's a lot of language that we know, but not everybody else knows. And so asset-based uh, just made a little blip on my forehead because what we're talking about there is sort of the default setting is a community is a problem. It, it doesn't even only have problems, it is a problem. And we want to list all of its problems and address those. So an asset-based approach to community development is saying exactly what you just said. Look at all the strengths, look at all the knowledge that's present here. So I just wanted to define that up, um, up for a second for our listeners. And Francois has something. Thanks, uh, Arlene. I, actually, I really love the name um, Naturally Occurring Cultural Districts because it's, it, it encapsulates the values of the, of the whole project so, so clearly. The, to, to say that, of course, culture is naturally occurring. And it's, so, but listening to you talk about it, I was, <clears throat> I was reminded of there, there's been, quite a rise in what's often called in the UK placemaking and it's always um, <clears throat> well it generally starts with local government or national government it's one of the one of the 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 problems behind it I think is that it's often easier to spend capital than to spend revenue funding so somebody will find a bit of capital 25 million for something for some town and then they'll, they'll say okay we'll we'll improve the high street and we'll put in a we'll we'll commission a sculpture and and we'll talk to people about what the sculpture should be about but it's it's very top down it's very you know outside in albeit with they kind of know they need to talk to people and involve the so what i wanted to ask you was because as Arlene said, you know, we, we're completely committed to the, to, to the asset based approach and the values that you described. Not, not just because it's what we believe in. Um, but because through experience, we've seen its effectiveness and its reality. But how do you, how have you been able to, um, convince, uh, partners and particularly partners with power? 
in New York City that this is a good way to work as opposed to that top-down version? Well, it's, it's hard, it, and it's hard. We didn't get any of the big creative placemaking money because of our approach. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I, I just want to, you made me flash on um, Roberto Bedoya, who is a colleague. Uh, he's the city manager of Oakland, and um, he talks about how placemaking is more about real estate rights than human rights, and that needs to be shifted. And I really think that it's our approach. First of all, we're not making places. Places exist and um, people exist in them. Um, I think where we look at place is built on relationships, not buildings. And that's why I think we're so interested in network approaches rather than institution building. And um, I think, you know, our approach is just to to strengthen those relationships. Now, I do feel vis-a-vis the powers that be, that something we're able to do and we're learning how to leverage further is our role as a grounded intermediary. And that's that's jargon, right? What it really means is a kind of go-between. We can speak both languages. We work a lot with city agencies. And we've learned ways to work with them, but then translate it, sort of redirect the funds in a way to more grassroots approaches that maybe the city agency can't directly fund themselves. So as an example of that, we did a big project. Uh, There's a program here called uh, in the U.S. called Our Town, which is a creative placemaking funding program. And it's for partnerships between city agencies and arts organizations. And we did get one of those grants through the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. And I think what we were able to do is that we were their partner, but the people who really did the work were the community-based organizations that we worked with. So um, we partnered with the agency and then we worked with a settlement house and then we worked with a, a youth violence interrupter group that was on the ground doing the work. It wasn't a special project for them. This is their ongoing work, but that's where the the real work happened. And so Karen, let me ask you a question about that. Um, I do wanna go back to a concrete example in a minute, but this is what you're saying is so interesting. And I'm thinking, you know, there's that uh, of sort of two ways to map what, 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 what you're going for here. One being that groups like NOCD and Y proliferate and can be those intermediaries and can support the work of people at the grassroots who won't necessarily have the access or the resources coming to them from, from the agency as, as such. And another fantasy, which I've had for a long time and maybe just a fantasy, is that they see that the way that this work operates and they actually change their own, the agencies, the, the, the people of the power, actually change their own approach to policy making, to research, and et cetera, based on your work. And I, I think it's door number one, probably, but what do you think? Do you think there's a way to shift the paradigm of what is cultural planning, what is community cultural development through exemplary work like yours? Or is it more like we have to get more of these intermediaries? No, I, I, I would, we're working towards there not being the intermediaries, but I do think that there are roles that we can play that can be useful. That is like a, in these times, with the way government operates, how to help facilitate it. But that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is that, you know, there's these relationships built directly with the community organizations and that um, they're, they're a key, they're, they're struck part of the structure of the city agency. And I think the way the city would answer now is to say, well, we have artists and residents but that, that isn't that. That is some, a, a project. It's not shifting power. It's not changing the structure. Uh, I think what does it a little bit more and is a really interesting idea, um, one of our colleagues is Elizabeth Hamby, and she was the one who brought us into the Department of Health, and now she's working with city planning. And she's an artist, and she calls herself a naturally occurring um, artist in residence. 
because her job isn't the arts there, but she brings her um, perspective as an artist to everything. I love that. We got to make something out of that, don't you think? There should be lots of those. It's it's a it's a really nice example, and I was thinking back over my own work over the, the years and. I've I've always had some ambiguity. There have been artists in residence and a lot of stuff's been written and said about how artists bring something special. And they can, and they do. But there's such a spectrum, isn't it, depending on who the artist is, because sometimes the special thing they think they're bringing is them. Um, and it's all about them. And and it it sounds, I mean, the person you're describing sounds like kind of person that can have the humility to to put ways of thinking and ways of seeing and past experiences in the service of others rather than um simply as a as a way to do the the things that they would want to do is that is that right yeah no absolutely um and i don't expect all artists to to want to do this work or or know how to do it but they still could be a great benefit to the communities so I think that is part of our role. And again, I don't like the word intermediary. I'd rather think of it more as a connector or facilitator or networker. But what we can do is, in one case, you know, they given the option to have an arts project, there everybody, a lot of people think about product. And so part of our role is to say, well, actually, maybe the process could be really accomplish the goals even better. And in this case, with the Department of Health, we did a, a series of stories collecting and story circles. And that's just what was needed. And it, especially because we started that project and then the pandemic hit and it became the perfect thing to do um, then. So I do think there is a role for a kind of partnership with artists so that they're not expected to do all of this work unless that there's somebody like Elizabeth who, who, who wants to. Yeah. Let me ask you, Karen, just to just to bring things into the most concrete possible focus for listeners. I know when we got in touch with you to invite you, you were right on the cusp of doing this um, citywide forum to reimagine New York City. And I saw that that was out at Hunts Point, which I think people would enjoy hearing about a place like that and its, and its role in the yeah. city. The forum's taken place now. Can you explain for listeners... Um, what it was, what you were trying to do, what the experience was like, and, and what impact it may have sure. had. So, um, yeah, it took place at The Point, which is a community development corporation, but it's really focused on youth and creativity. Um, they, It's in Hunts Point, which is um, a community in the South Bronx, you know, that's both known for uh, things like incredible environmental injustices, um, but also incredible community organizing and creative community organizing. And the point has been connected with, there's a visioning process now, the Bronx agenda. They're, they're tied into a lot of what's going on in the neighborhood. And one of the things the point does is they have a fish parade which is a festival every year. And it started out when the or the neighborhood organized against the Hunts Point fish market, which uh, was a big struggle in the community, that fish market coming there. And then uh, that struggle wasn't won. There is the fish market, but um, the fish parade kind of keeps to the forefront what the current activism is in the community. And it's all designed by artists and environmental activists. So we wanted to do the convening there because if you're reimagining the city, the point is a, an amazing place to be at that reimagines the city constantly and um, reimagines their neighborhood. And basically, uh, over the last two years, we had a project called Reimagining New York. Um, we did it, again, it started it was actually longer than two years. It started before the pandemic, the idea of it. And we were going to have an election in New York where the mayor, most of the city council was going to turn over. It was going to really be a, a clean slate. And it was an opportunity to um, 
come up with some recommendations because what we've learned in our work doing grassroots advocacy is you can't just talk about what you don't want. You need to be able to have really clear, strong recommendations about what you want and you need to build power around those recommendations. It can't just be the arts community asking for things. It needs to be recommendations that go beyond our own needs. So we had done that in the last uh, city transition and gotten a lot of impact out of it. And several of our recommendations actually, you know, happened. And, but we did it in a very pragmatic way about like, what are things that people could do? And this time around, we wanted to make it more visionary and not be limited by what we thought could actually happen, but really think outside of the status quo and tweaking the status quo. And, you know, part of that was driven by the fact that we were a partner in the city's uh, cultural plan. And that was a good experience and it was a new experience for us working kind of from the inside of government. But throughout that experience, we kept thinking, what would it be like if we didn't have the restrictions um, that the cultural plan had? So uh, we planned a series of conversations in communities in all, all over New York, Staten Island, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan. And the idea was that they would either be thematic or they'd be neighborhood-based. And we would encourage people to think beyond um, the status quo uh, about what like, they'd like to see. And it was very recommendation driven because then we wanted to bring these recommendations to the new mayor and city council. Well, then COVID happened and it really shifted the dynamic because when you're in the middle of a crisis, um, even though what I will say is a lot of these communities are always in the middle of a crisis of one kind or another, this wasn't like, hardship isn't new to them. <laughs> but what was, you know, when we started doing conversations on Zoom and then when we were able to come back together in person, people did not want to talk about recommendations. They wanted to tell stories. And so we kind of reframed the, the conversations uh, to be more around storytelling and around, and then we developed the recommendations out of the stories. Um, but it, it, when you come back together after being isolated, you want to talk about your experience. So an example is we had a discussion about public space and, the, and we just asked everybody, what's, what are some examples of the extraordinary ways you saw public space used or uh, during the pandemic? And people told these amazing stories. And then the next round was to say, and what recommendations would you make so that those things don't just happen in a moment of crisis, but they can actually be built into our policy to continue. And, and that was harder. People weren't ready to, to go there yet. And so this, this has been going on over the last two years. And what we did for the citywide forum is those were invita invited um, conversations. There was a youth forum, there was public housing forum, there were all different things. This was to open it up to the public and to take the recommendations that we gleaned from these stories and to put them back out to everybody and say, what do you think of this? And, um, you know, we, we had a plenary uh, that really talked about, um, you know, the, the themes being the power of cultural hubs and networks, the power of public space. Um, and then another topic that we talked about was like, how do you have genuine like the difficulties of coalition building, but how do you build these artist activist um, relationships and coalitions in a way that they can continue and have an impact and being at the point was, was a good example of that with the fish parade. So those were some of the things that happened. And then we had performances there. We had, which was really important, an elder from the community performing who had taught you know, in the theme of networks, this guy had taught so many different people who then went on to become leaders in the community. Um, so seeing that continuity of sustained work in a community over time. Well, thank you so much, Karen. Well, I want to ask you one more question about this enterprise and then and then let's move to some of the other projects that that 
that you're working on as well because Karen is a renaissance woman. She, she has many, many pots to have fingers in and she does a good job in all of them. Um, but I was asking you about this whole enterprise of participatory budgeting, participatory cultural planning, you know, when you convene a, a community and sometimes, especially when it comes to budgeting, um, it's very, you know, concrete, specific numbers, granular. And sometimes in cultural planning, you're, you're working more with people's hopes and beliefs and ideas. And, you know, it's, it, it's a different kind of discourse dialogue. You told me it's, uh, it started in Brazil in 1989. Oh, so... Say a little bit about that. Yeah, so participatory budgeting is actually something that we, that Arts and Democracy is involved in. Um, and, mm. and I've been involved in it as a neighbor in my community. Um, but uh, the idea started in, in, in Brazil, in Porto Alegre, um, and then it expanded around the world. And um, I, I, I think it was the U.S. Social Forum where it was introduced to uh, folks in the U.S., some uh, city council members. And um, it had been done in Chicago in one district. And in New York, they, they did it in four city council districts. And uh, I think it's like 30,000 people in a district or so. And the idea, and I was lucky to have our council member be one of the people who started it in New York, Brad Lander. And um, it was, he formed a district committee, which was kind of a diverse group of residents to help shape the program. And um, basically he gave up a certain amount of his discretionary money, a um, couple of million and said to the community, how would you spend that money? And um, so it started out um, around capital projects. So it's more like, do you want a library renovation? Do you want a, a school, computers for schools? Do you want, um, and you know, some of it was distressing. So in our first year, the project that got the most votes was doors for the bathrooms at a school that didn't have doors on their bathrooms. And, you know, it kind of makes you think, um, why isn't the city paying for this? Why is this discretionary money? But that's good. I mean, I think that more than anything, it, the PB money is very little, but the education it gives the participants in the city budget and how city money gets spent it really activates people. And um, so you it's like an entry level, you get involved, you make some concrete decisions, you get to see your thing built, which is very satisfying. But you also start lobbying the Department of Education and say, why aren't you putting doors on bathrooms? Or the other one that people got really organized around was air conditioners in the schools. There weren't air conditioners. And so they kept we kept getting air conditioner projects to PB. So, I was involved on the district community in my committee in my district, but also we felt like there should be art making as part of this process because it's such a creative process. You're asking people to imagine what they want in their community. And it particularly, we also advocated for and, and, and won uh, the ability to not just have capital projects, but also program programs, program, which people were much more captivated by you know so like one of the first program projects that one was translation devices in the schools that have multiple languages you know really concrete doesn't cost a lot makes a huge difference kind of thing and what we did is we did these creative workshops with people and their families to actually make depic depictions of their projects like a you know almost like a science fair you know like a you build it, you build a, uh, an air conditioner, you, and then those were, um, we, we would have a community expo where people would put those up and then neighbors could come by and talk to people about their projects. Very cool. The whole, the, the participatory budgeting thing is, has become, um, uh, now quite widespread. I know that there are, 
there are French uh, municipalities where versions of it are operating. And it, but I have always, I've always wanted to to see a more a more radical approach. I, in um, about 20, 25 years ago, I worked on a program with a Belgian foundation in Eastern Europe where uh, we were able to give communities um, money directly, pretty much unconditionally, because it was foundation money. I mean, they, they wrote a letter and said what, they, what their idea was, and we would help them develop that into a project. But the, the empowerment of actually giving them the money directly, sometimes they even had to open a bank account because they'd never, they, they weren't a, a constituted organization at the beginning. And it was incredibly empowering. And I've tried to, to, to persuade people in other parts of Europe, particularly governments or local governments, to trust people with small amounts of money because small amounts of cultural money, you know, you give, give a community group $10,000. It's not a big risk. And what I learned from that other, uh, project in Eastern Europe was that actually it's the power of trust that when people are trusted, to do something, they so want to 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 use it well and demonstrate that that how how competent and trustworthy they are. And I just wanted to mention one one thing that again we can put a, a link in the blog. The 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 biggest example of that that I've seen um, was something called um, uh, uh, the Big Local, which was uh, in the UK. It was a program set up by the local trust, which was uh, funding from the National Lottery, where they gave 150 local areas a substantial amount of money. I mean, like, I, I'm guessing, but it might have been, uh, it will have been over a million um, in each area, um, or that kind of order of money, and help them organize on how to make decisions about what to do with it, and so on. There's a really good website that tells the story of that, but they and I, and when I saw that happen, I finally thought, yeah, there are people who get that actually things happen and really change when you, when you trust pe- people to know what they want to do. And, and just as, as I think your, your organization has been doing, it's about giving people the, the tools and resources to be able to do that work. For themselves. No, I, I agree with you, and I am much more excited about no restrictions and trusts on the money. Mm. I think what I and I I was one of the most frustrated people about all the restrictions that PB has, which I don't. I think I at one point got very upset and accused our city council member. I said, "You're supposed to be a progressive person, and this isn't progressive." Um, but. The piece of it I will still, you know, that I still feel strongly is useful is um, by having to deal with government, um, you're really creating advocates and, and with who know how to access the powers that be. And there, before the only avenues for doing that sort of official avenues were being on a community board which I think a lot of people aren't going to do because it's a lot of bureaucracy. And this is an easy access way to, and then when you come out of it, you know that you can call your city council member, you know who to call in the city agency. So I think there's a value to that, even if it's incredibly um, restricted, what you can do. I, I agree. And, and I, when you mentioned that before, I thought actually, yeah, that's, that's probably something that I've underestimated. It's, um, it's, it's a, a version of, of, um, building people's capacity and confidence, but also, as you say, just networks, knowing that, you know, if you know who, who you can speak to about a problem, then you're empowered in a, in a fundamentally different way than if you have no idea who the, who, the, the council member might, who might be able to help you is. So I think it's a really good point. And one of the things that I think is great about many of these projects that we're talking about where trust undergirded um, the, the initiative in some way is um, 
you know, I'm not really one of those people who's like, we need artists at every table just because they're artists and they're so creative. I mean, I think it's great to have artists and also let's have every other kind of work in the world. But artists as citizens, artists as cultural citizens, artists as um, community members, people who are grounded somewhere and invested in the well-being of that place and wanting to be part of the dialogue and the networks and so forth that sustain that well-being I'm all for that, you know, and it, it sometimes it's just a filling a slot with a with a name. But but when we're talking about this quality of engagement and then as soon as you guys started talking about it, I thought, shit, you know, back in 1977, I, I ha ran a project for the California Arts Council called Cultural News and Services. And that's what we did. We gave little bits of money, uh, among other things, we gave little bits of money to communities that had never gotten any money from the Arts Council per se, because they weren't organized on the level and established on the level. When I was chief policy wonk at the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture a little while back, we did the same thing. We gave teeny bits um, and lots of technical assistance from people who shared their values and who they trusted to help them do things in the way that they wanted to do it. So we all have a lot of examples of times when this succeeded. And to tell you the truth, I don't have any examples myself of times when it backfired in a bad way or something, you know, wrong happened. Although I've seen times when a so-called creative placemaking project dumped tons of money to the wrong people in the community to do the wrong things. And that backfired big time. So, you know, we're, we're talking about a different level of intervention and it is trust-based, which is so important to say. Um, yeah. I mean, the other example I want to bring up is, is again, you know, which really was highlighted during the pandemic, is the solidarity funds that came together. And those were top down. Those were, um, I mean, maybe the source of the money initially was from a foundation somewhere, but it was then organized, mm -hmm. whether it was the Indie Theater Fund, Solidarity Fund, or whether it was one of the many mutual aid efforts where people, you know, self-organized um, support for each other. Yeah, so here we have this this interesting thing. Right before we started recording listeners, um, Karen and Francois and I were talking about uh, the way that agencies and, and uh, organizations with um, entrenched power, they want to have a simple way to relate to what they think of as community, which is usually one person who's a spokesperson for everybody. And, you know, you just have to plug in really easily and, and you get the you, you get what you need, as opposed to the paradigm that we're all talking about, which is many voices, many different kinds of knowledge, many visions of possibility, which by their multitude create something that's much more generative and, and valuable and, and interesting than that other way. Um, I think, uh, Karen, you were talking about um, community. It's not a simple thing. It, it's a complex thing. And that feels like one of the most important things that all of your work has encoded, that understanding of community as, you know, complex and multiple, not a singular word, but a plural one. And talk about how you feel like that, that it isn't even an idea, how that truth can infuse more of what's going on in in terms of community cultural development? Well, I mean, an example is, and this is Arts and Democracy works pretty deeply in this in a uh, Brooklyn community called Kensington. And it has, a, it's very diverse with a lot of immigrant communities as part of it. And the reason we're able, we do work a lot in the Bangladeshi community there. And one of the reasons we can is because uh, one of our team is from that community and is Bangladeshi. And when she designed the project, um, that was kind of, I mean, I learned so much from her because she said, you know, I want to focus on women and youth, you know, because there's one part of the Bangladeshi community which is very male focused. There's also generational differences and there's a lot of young people. So when we started doing open mics and, and projects with young people, they didn't want to do it in the community. So it, as much as they identified with Kensington, they, they felt safer to be outside of the community because they were talking about being gay. They were talking about taboo topics in the community. Um, and so, you know, we're actually doing a project now in addition to all the cultural programming we do there 
we're helping um, develop a cultural council of these very small groups to support each other and also to learn more about what are the networks and how can those networks in Kensington be supported. But the more you go into it's a participatory action research project and the more you go into it, the deeper you get into it, the more you see all these layers of the community. Yeah, and let's define that for listeners too, because it's such an important phrase, participatory action research. Because you know the 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 conventional idea of research is at a distance, right? You're the researcher, you're pure, you're at arm's length from what you're doing, you're observing it, and you're commenting on it, you're documenting it. Uh, participatory research is where you you understand that the participants are the people who have the expertise that's needed and they will generate um, the information that will serve them best. Action research is learning by doing. Instead of learning just by talking about uh, uh, observing, you're also interacting with each other and learning from that experience. Participatory action research is so key to everything that um, NOCD, NY, and arts and democracy are doing, and I think Francois wants to say something about that. Yeah. Yeah. Just to 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 add something to to this notion, I suppose how we think about uh, communities. I was reading a an essay on on the um, naturally occurring cultural districts website called Culture is Like Water. It always finds the low ground first, and there was very interesting. Um, <clears throat> A passage where that is complexifying community as a as an idea, recognizing that first of all there is not the community; there are communities, and they're porous and they overlap. And you know, we we all belong to to uh, to to many communities. You know, from from our personal communities to communities of interest to communities based on our neighborhoods to political communities or religious communities or all kinds of things and some and sometimes they're more important to us sometimes they're less important to us sometimes we're in conflict with them sometimes they're really supportive you know they it's and and I think anyone who works closely and 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 seriously with people in neighborhoods will 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 recognize and understand that and for me one of the big difficulties is is that um as as Arlene said we were talking before this this wish to simplify um the interlocutors that you might engage when you're a a politician or a policymaker or manager you know you you don't have that that time to be fair always to to understand the the complexity of of those communities which is where your your role as enablers, facilitators, connectors, I like all of those words for um, between between people. I think a lot about the the boundary between the people who decide and the people who uh, have to put up with what's decided. And I think uh, certainly in the, in the kind of work I've done in community arts, we're I've, I've all, I'm always crossing that boundary, never quite sure where I am. Um, and there are dangers, you know, you can get, you can think you're on one side of the boundary when actually you, your head is still on the other side of it. Um, but that's, that's what makes it all so, so rich and interesting and challenging and, and living. And I think it guides your decisions, whether you're a policymaker or you're a group like us. Like when I think about Kensington, I think a lot of this complexity of community plays out around who claims public space and like who feels like they can, who feels entitled to the space and who, um, who gets supported in that space. Um, or, um, you know, I'm following a conflict that happened in Kentucky where I used to live, um, involving, um, some folks who, um, a group of, people who are developing a grassroots funding network who are meeting in a spot and are very diverse and are rep and they're all from Appalachia, you know, they're people of color, they're gay. I mean, and then in the middle of their meeting in what they thought was a safe space, they were interrupted by other people claiming that space who said they were desecrating the space. 
And, you know, these are all people who live there. That's their community. And so who do you, you know, you make a decision about who you're going to support and who you're going to um, stand behind. And the same thing is true in um, Kensington. There's a lot of people in that community. We have limited capacity. We've made decisions about who we want to put our time into um, supporting and working with. And that's the immigrant communities. And then on the policy level, and then on the policy level, what I would say is we're fortunate to have had a, a progressive city council member. And then the person who followed him is the first Muslim woman from that neighborhood in the city council. And the, the decisions they're making in terms of who they are really um, putting their money behind in the community, um, who have been historically not had money put behind, you know, that's progressive policy making. That's really interesting. Could you, I can see um, a number of different ways of deciding how you make decisions about who you put your weight behind, who you're going to support. Could you say a little bit about um, what the, what guides, how you make those, those choices? Well, in our case in Kensington, it's the leadership of the people there that we're working with. So we knew we wanted to work in the immigrant communities. So that was a decision because of the mission of arts and democracy to work with historically disenfranchised communities. Uh, who That's not to say they're not creative and, and leaders and everything, but they're just ones that have historically not been given resources or power although they have power themselves. So then once we decided to work in that community, we have leadership, a, a person from that community, and through her lived experience and network, she identified the two groups she wanted to work with, which was women and youth. Yeah, and of course other criteria, I mean, depending on, on the situation, I know something I've written about recently, um, and it's very tried to me, but I'm always quoting, that Bob Dylan song, you gotta serve somebody because the recognition that no matter what you're doing, um, someone is benefits, qui bono, who benefits, someone is benefiting from the work you're doing and you can see who that is. And that can inform whether it's an organization or an individual in, the, in, in their own work, that can inform that choice about who, who you're gonna serve. You know, for me, it always tends to be um, who already has the power, who already has the resources, and it becomes an easy decision. You know, you want to do something that helps more people have access and, and possibility in their lives and in their communities. But of course, when you're working in a diverse uh, community as an organization, a lot more questions come into it too. I, I think that's, I recognize that. I was thinking about the, the example you gave from Appalachia and thinking, I think if it was me, one of the key uh, principles that would guide my choice is um, that I would be wanting to support the, the group that was tolerant of, of the other group, if you see what I mean. You, you have to support tolerance because that's the only, it's the only place that you can start to solve problems and build, and build more community and more, um, or bigger, bigger, stronger communities. It, so the it might be ways and needs to work with the with the the group that is uh that you described as coming into the space and saying you know you're you're uh to to the to the first group challenging their right to be there but i think it's the for me it would be the the group that is trying to extend public space not the group that's trying to reduce public space and who has access to it it's a good principle and they're all, I mean, you can have such a pissing match about these things because it is like a neighborhood development. One group can say, why not let Starbucks come in? Why not let all these boutiques yeah. come in? We'll have more people in the neighborhood. Well, they're the ones who are putting themselves on the side of access while other people mm. are not wanting to be displaced. So, you know, there's a lot mm. of different stories, but I hear you and I'm usually And there. I would say that by focusing in on a specific group, 
And again, you know, we're tiny. Both of my groups are really tiny. Um, and so you can do a certain number of things and you want to have an impact. And so in Kensington, the focus on women and youth, that doesn't mean, like one of the things we do that's, I guess you could call it a kind of placekeeping or placemaking is that we have a community iftar every year to um, celebrate the breakfast of Ramadan. But, um, you know, the local rabbi comes, the, the, the synagogue sends volunteers. It's very interfaith. It's men, it's women. It's, um, but the people who get the microphone and who um, speak are uh, women from the women activist artists. So that was a decision we made about whose voice got amplified. And hundreds of people come to this event. It's very beloved now. And there's free food for everybody. It's a wonderful event. But I think in, in its specificity, it actually is reaching more people. Good point, Karen. I, I so respect and love your work. And I'm so happy to have you here with us. I want to ask you one more question. Um, and just let me contextualize that. You know, we've been talking to folks um, mostly from Europe and, and the United States, but also our last guest was from the Philippines um, and a number of people come from other places. And we're finding such a diversity of how the work is supported so that in places that have a more more of a public se sector investment in cultural democracy or cultural development, people get big grants from government. They have, you know, pu public sector jobs or whatever. Other places, people are working day jobs to support the important work they're doing as, as cultural workers. So how are both NOCD and arts and democracy being supported at this point? Well, you know, here the funding system is very fickle. And um, at one point, arts and democracy had foundation grants and now doesn't really and is mostly supported by public money, which is one year. So you don't know from year to year. Um, what you're going to have. And um, that's very challenging. Um, you have to just um, it's kind of take the risk, which a lot of groups can't afford to do. Because um, you don't hear about your public money decision until half the year's over. So either you don't program during that time, or, you know, that doesn't, that's not very accountable to the community, though. So or you program and hope for the best, which is what we do. Um, we purposefully created two organizations that are really small, don't have a lot of overhead. We don't have an office. We work virtually. We use spaces of our colleague organizations in our network. Um, nobody's getting paid full time. And, you know, that was a decision we made because then we can grow and grow larger and smaller as, as funding allows us to. Um, so everybody who works, um, works other jobs. I work both for Arts and Democracy and NOCD, and I teach at NYU. Um, and then one thing we've been trying to do with NOCD is I've been taking consulting opportunities that are given to me, and I've um, asked them to make them available to the whole organization because they'll get more points of view and more experience. And then we use any of those consulting jobs puts extra money in the pockets of people working for NOCD. Yeah. Thanks, Karen. I guess, you know, as someone who lives stateside too, I just always want people who live in other countries to understand what it's like here because it's like richest country on the planet, you know, all, all of that stuff. And the reality is the, the bulk of the U.S.-based people that we've um, interviewed uh, live hand to mouth, project to project, day job to day job, and that's messed up, but there it is. One thing we were lucky to get this year, um, but this is just the way it works, is we got a large grant from the Mellon Foundation, um, which was for one year, and which we're asking for an extension to extend it to two years so we can work on it longer. And it was a research grant, and that's what we decided to take this research money and partner with five of the communities we've been working with and partners in those communities and do participatory action research projects in those five communities. So in a, we can continue to work and support the on the ground work, but also learn from it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Great. Karen, is there anything that we didn't ask you about that you think when you contemplate what would be important for listeners to know? Anything you want to be sure to tell folks? Um, I just think coming out of that, Melon, uh, thinking about that, um, the thing we're researching is the power of networks and communities. And I think that's a message that's becoming increasingly important to me, both when advocating to funders to say, you know, look at where things really have an impact. It's not always through institutions. It may be through clusters of groups or a cultural hub that has a, a network around it that it's uh, working with. And let's, let's shift the way we're looking at um, how things get done and how change gets made. And of course, if you're investing in networks, it can't be for one year. It has to be over time. So that's kind of been a lot on my mind. And, you know, just going back to the origin of NOCD around, you know, how do we all survive and thrive? Um, you know, we, we had the chance with this uh, project for Mellon to kind of ask a question. And we went back to that question, you know, looking at the pandemic and, and the incredible role that community organizations played during that pandemic above and beyond. You know, they always have played this resilient role, but now even more so. Again, how do you not just recognize it in crisis, but how do you build that proactively into what your policy is? Because that's the way you're going to get things accomplished, and that's the way communities are going to flourish. And that's the way social and cultural fabric is going to be there all the time and when a crisis arises and you need it. When you say that, I remember following you guys and other people on the eastern seaboard during Superstorm Sandy. And I remember some of the stories you told um, in Art Became the Oxygen, a guide. I'll put that on the downloads, mm. too, that I wrote for USDAC. Mm. We talked about the stuff that you were doing to support people who were displaced from their homes by that storm. So this goes on and on and on. And how do you take... And, and just how do you take that extraordinary creativity that happens in, in after the storm when everybody, you know, can't, comes together and thinks in completely new imaginative ways of how, how to support each other. And, and again, how do you build that into the fabric, the ongoing fabric um, of how a city works instead of the aberration? Yeah. Such a good I think question. it's a, it, it's challenging i mean I've, I've been thinking also about what happened during the pandemic and how quickly afterwards people have forgotten and gone back to previous ways of working and it's i think there are times when we we recognize that there is a need that is bigger than our own parochial interests whether that's a storm or the pandemic, or maybe now the climate emergency might be the thing that helps people actually recognize that, that we are only going to make progress if we learn to work together and change some of the basic ways of, of some of the assumptions that we have about what's good for us. Amen. <laughs> Sorry. It's a very sententious end. <laughs> <laughs> no, I meant it seriously. I mean, so be it, right? No, I agree. No. And I think that the idea <laughs> of the common good or, you know, in our recommendations, people started talking about, like, what if in the city invested with the public good as the goal as opposed to the many other goals that are often used? And I love that question because you can start imagining all the things that could happen. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Karen, thank you a million, zillion, billion for being with us. It was so interesting and so fun and so admirable and so great. Mm. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to, to listen to you. Thank you. Great to be in conversation. Really enjoyed it. Now that you've heard the podcast, you can go to the website to find out more details, including references and links. 
The website's at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.